As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Welcome to Allocation Disorder. I am Sam Stayskull, joined, as always, by Paul Tenorio, coming to you on your favorite podcast feed and on the Athletic Soccer YouTube page. You can find us there. Link in the description for those of you interested in seeing our smiling, beautiful faces on camera. Um, Paul, how's it going, man? I'm a little worried because usually you say my friend and colleague, and maybe I'm on on your bad side today. Maybe you are. I guess we'll find out. Stay tuned. (laughs) Paul, there are a couple head coaches that were on the bad side of their MLS teams this week. Uh, Matias Almeida, we spoke about that situation on our last show uh, out in San Jose. The Earthquakes and him parted ways. They, the Quakes decided to fire him, made that official on Monday. Um, we don't need to talk too much about that decision because we talked quite a bit about San Jose last week, uh, but they did, they did actually make it right um, again, you know, kind of throwing away the entire season by not making a decision on him this offseason. But so it goes for John Fisher and the Earthquakes. Paul, what I want to talk about more today is DC United. They fired Hernan Losada on Wednesday. Somewhat surprising to, I think, people that that don't know what was going on behind the scenes. Um, They were two and four this MLS season. Uh, The last of those losses, um, of which there have been four in a row in league play, Coming to Austin FC at home on Saturday, DC leading 2 nothing for most of that match, playing down a man for basically the entire second half, and then giving up three goals in the final 10 minutes to lose 3-2 to two to Austin. Um, that game caused issues, to put it mildly. Uh, they ended up winning their Open Cup match against Flower City Union, which is a NISA team up in Rochester on Wednesday, or excuse me, on Tuesday. And then on Wednesday morning, Losada was fired. So what what do you make of this decision? We wrote an article about it with with our colleague, colleague Pablo Maurer that just published on The Athletic on Thursday. So check that out. But what do you make of this decision? What do you make of DC? What do you make of where they go from here? Yeah, I mean, I think it was I think it was both surprising and after the course of our reporting, maybe a little bit not surprising. You know, I certainly there were issues that existed below the surface. Um what we see on the field every weekend isn't the only thing happening within a club. And there were relationships that were frayed between Losada and DC United's front office, between Losada and some of the players. 
And, you know, it's been interesting just to kind of see the reaction from around the league and then even to see the reaction to our story and the early goings on the athletic website from some of the readers. Like, it's not mutually exclusive. The idea that, like, Losada had issues within the club and, you know, that this relationship was fraying and that there's a lot that has to be fixed at DC United that goes beyond Losada. And we'll get into all that later. I, I just want to make sure that that's clear. But I think that, you know, we have to acknowledge that the results haven't been good so far this season, that the end... They haven't been good, but it's still so, so early. Three, three, three of those four losses came at home. And, and at the end of last season, they went from third place to eighth place in the final month of the season. So I think we can acknowledge that things weren't, haven't been going right, you know, at DC United. Sure. But this is a, you know, it is a quick trigger. And I think that especially when you consider that they only just signed a DP who's only played, you know, in two games or one game, um, you know, the one player that they really spent money on. After losing, been, after losing two of their better players in Paredes and Paul Areola this right. season. And, and, you know, I think that when you considered that side of things, my, my thought was like, I saw Jonathan Tannenwald tweeted this out when the announcement first happened, which was like, okay, so you hire a guy, he coaches a year with with the previous coach's roster, you change over the roster dramatically. I mean, significant number of players went out at the end of last season, including the two you mentioned before. Ten players came in, and yet it's over after six games. That math feels a bit off to me. That math feels like there wasn't like a, like minds might have already been made up going into this year, and it was about waiting for the right opportunity, which happens all the time, Sam. I don't know if I would go so far as to say that minds were made up heading into this year. I think if they were four and two instead of two and four, then we're not talk- having this conversation sure. today, right? I think um, the mind, when I say that, I mean like if the moment arises, this isn't going to be like a we're gonna we're gonna see it out. Obviously not, right? Like right. And, and and clearly there had been deterioration, basically communication breakdowns is I think the best way to describe this between Losada and the front office and Losada and some of the players too. You know, he was a very demanding, very exacting coach in MLS. And there's nothing wrong with that, right? It's just kind of a messaging question. Like, how much are you taking into account what the players want or what they need or what they think? Um, how much are you listening to them? Are you giving them the opportunity to, to even air their concerns? And from our reporting, it sounds like there wasn't a lot of that going on with DC United. And when you combine that with difficult training sessions and a uh, weigh-ins and fines for not making weight um, and all of those things. And, and a coach who, who really wanted to control a lot of aspects of these players' lives, right? From diet to sleep to um, how hard they're working again to the weigh-in thing. Um, and when you combine the, the not really giving them a voice or not really listening to them with the demands, then that becomes a little bit grating, Right. And when you throw poor results on top of that, that can lead to an outcome like what we saw. The other element of this that I want to touch on is that Losada was not shy in the media about criticizing his own ownership and saying we need to spend more money on players, on different behind-the-scenes elements of our club, and make this a more professional operation. And I had a source familiar with DC come to me and say, hey, it's one thing if the coach and the GM don't get along. That actually happens at many clubs in MLS, right? Owners don't necessarily care about that. 
Um, what they do care about is when you start calling them out publicly. That makes your leash significantly shorter. And I think that's sort of what we saw here with Losada. That's that's an element to this story and an element and a reason why I think the leash was as short as it was and the, the hook was as quick as it was. Yeah, let's talk about that tension between a GM and a coach. It's it's normal and it's good in in a lot of ways. You have sometimes you have somebody who is going to who is actually actually controlling the roster, right? And what players get signed, and you have a coach who has desires of what players to sign and and how much money to spend. A coach is always going to want more. I think that's typical. Everyone likes to make fun of Adrian Heath about it. He always says we're one to two players away. Um, and you know, I covered him in Orlando and he said that stuff all the time. Like that's, that's the tension that's always there. And it's about, you know, yeah, you want that tension to be there at a, at a professional level, right? Like it can go above that and then into the, the red zone where it becomes problematic. But I think that, that, that natural tension is just part of the job. I, I also think that what Losada was saying was true. You know, there is a lot that DC United lags behind on when it comes to spending in this league. And, and I think back to, I'm going to try not to mention the team or the, the, there was another team that was similar to DC United in um, a few years ago and how they operated. Um, Very low budget, very low budget, very bare bones on the stuff that you wouldn't see that you and I even wouldn't see really typically, but that, involves the players everyday lives including things like what are they eating when they come into the facility you know what does their weight room look like and this team brought in a player who had come from another better club and the first thing he did was go to the gm and start to say like you brought me in as a leader you brought me in as a as a captain and like not not the revolution Schweinsteiger in the fire okay this stuff needs to change you know yeah this stuff needs to change and and it wasn't Schweinsteiger, by the way. And, um, okay. <laughs> and, you know, I think that that's like probably the first way to go about it, right? To go internally. But I was struck by what Losada said when you go back and read his old quotes, you know, or quotes of players in a story that Pablo Maurer did last year where you say that he was encouraging his players and saying, you have to put public pressure, otherwise things won't change. Yeah. And, you know. It's a fine line, though. That's a tightrope. It is. It's a tightrope, but it doesn't change the fact. And I, I keep coming back to this. He wasn't wrong. Like DC United today, a report came out that Gareth Bale is a DC United target. It's like the perfect, to me, some like summary look over of there. what DC yeah. United is. Yeah. yeah. It's like, not only is it like, look over there, but it's like, oh, like we need to show that we're invested in this club. Let's go sign like a 32 year old Wayne Rooney DP again for $6 million a year. And it shows that we're committed to spending. I mean, and to like, be fair, Gareth Bale would be amazing in MLS. Sure. And Wayne Rooney was very good in MLS. He would be better than too. Rooney. By I agree. I, well, yeah. if he's committed, right? You have to you have to keep that in I mean, mind. Even if he's like not that committed, he would still. No, be I think commitment of DPs is probably the biggest factor in their success. Golf, Wales, DC United in that order. Yeah. So I just, my, my point is, is like, that's not the way MLS works anymore. Like the league has moved on from one DP being a solution to truly what what the idea of spending is. Like spending at a club to be successful long term goes into infrastructure. Sure. And they built a stadium and they finally finished the training facility. 
but you know, scouting networks, uh, academy investment, analytics, sports science. These are the things where you start to set your club up to have long-term yeah. success. In a capped league, it's where you can really make a marginal difference. There's no cap on any of that stuff. How much right. you're paying your coaches, which DC United was not paying. I, I interviewed Greg Vanny last week when he was here in Chicago for a story that'll come out at some point when I sit down and write it. This DC United thing, you know, changed my schedule. Look for it in seven days. to eight months. <laughs> um, and, you know, that's that's the stuff he talked about doing right away when he arrived in L.A. It's like you the Galaxy are a very similar idea of like, oh, let's go get a big Zlatan star who was great in this league. But if you don't have the infrastructure, it's hard to compete. That's, yeah. that's the new MLS. Absolutely. And, and to me, Paul, this sort of all goes back to one thing. And this is something that we both got texts about like immediately after Losada was fired. Um, <laughs> and it was, oh, this club is a mess. It's not, oh, Losada, what a surprise. Or, oh, he got a raw deal. Or, oh, this is the right thing to do. It was like, it wasn't even about like the firing. It was about ownership and what are they doing? And do they actually have a plan and what is the deal with DC United going forward? And like, who would want to work for them? Who would? Like, and, and they can change, right? But the way that Steve Kaplan and Jason Levian have run this club thus far hasn't been all that inspiring. And Paul, it was interesting. We were going back through an old interview that you did with Steve Kaplan. Well, I think in 2018, so three and a half years ago now. Um, but he was talking a pretty big game about being ambitious and really going for it and pushing the other owners to really go for it. And what have we seen DC United do since then? They moved Wayne Rooney. Uh, they moved Lucho Acosta. They shot themselves in the foot and cost themselves millions of dollars, according to what we've been told, on that PSG deal that that was and then wasn't. Um, and they, they signed Edison Flores um, for a lot of money, right? Five million bucks, I think, on the transfer fee. He hasn't worked out. Um, I don't think that's a, that's a signing where you can question the ambition of owners. It's certainly a signing where you can question the execution of the sporting department. Um, but apart from Flores, there haven't been a ton of moves from this club that have really been like, okay, let's go for it. I remember, Paul, that 2018 season at Audi Fields and that moment with Wayne Rooney and that pass to Lucho Acosta and that header and just like how amazing that felt. Watching that live... And thinking to yourself, okay, there's Lucho Acosta jumping into the stands. This place erupts. And it's like, okay, is this the start of something new here for DC United? And it felt like that from then on in 2018. And then 2019, it just kind of backslid. And it hasn't been the same since. Some of that is COVID, I think, to be fair. But some of it is just this ownership group has, has taken their foot off the pedal big time. Yeah. I mean, again, you go and you look at how clubs respond to these big years and and the idea that's where the, you get protection from the from the investment in infrastructure. Right? You have a scouting network that can help find you players because not every signing is going to be a DP. You know, that DC United team had Wayne Rooney and Lucho Acosta that they decided to keep Acosta. And, you know, you need to fill the rest of the roster with quality players from abroad as well as domestically. And you know, I, I'm going to speak on this a little bit from my perspective of being a DC native, you know, growing up, you know, I remember when DC United launched, I remember watching the first game against the San Jose Earthquakes. I put on my Instagram page, a, a home video that I found last year 
where I like did a teaser for the opening game against the earthquakes as a 10 year old. And <laughs> what? I, yeah, I, I was like talking to my mom and out of the blue, I'm like tonight on ESPN, my <laughs> DC United takes on the San Jose earthquakes at 8 p.m., you know, and like I remember going to RFK and, and seeing those crowds, the Barra Brava and, and watching Echeverry and Raul Diaz Arce and John Harks and Eddie Pope and, you know, what those teams were about and what the crowds were about. And DC United has been chasing that or they whether they are actively doing it or not, they're always chasing that history, but also that atmosphere, that environment. It was the first real soccer environment in Major League Soccer, in my opinion. And they haven't been able to get that. And and I do agree with you in that I felt like maybe they had a chance when the Rooney stuff was happening and Acosta was jumping into the crowd and people were starting to pay attention and the, the atmosphere was starting to be lively again. And, it, you know, I just feel that you can't accomplish it when you are trying to do the bare minimum to be competitive. Like I think that the 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 crowds in DC, the fans in DC are able to pick and choose their product nowadays. You know, it's a very different city than when I grew up. It's it's you know, there are a lot of tran like tr- uh what's the word I'm looking for? Transient. Transient a population because of the government, the way the government functions in the city and the market, a lot of people are coming in to work for the government to work for all of the consultant firms that are there. And so you can go see the Caps who are good or the Nats when they're good or I mean no one goes to watch the football team cuz Dan Snyder but the you have your choices the yeah, you you have your choices and the soccer fans in that area they either have you know don't like MLS in general or they feel like they the front office has burned them over time or they're looking for a reason to show up and those reasons haven't been there and, you know, I, I don't know. I know I'm rambling here a little bit, but like it, it's crazy every time I go home and I go to a, a game at Audi Field. Like it's crazy to me that there is a soccer stadium in D.C. You know, I, I just think that it's nuts. It, it blows my mind every time I see it. And so I try not to complain too much about the fact that that stadium is bare bones. Like it is it is a bare bones stadium because it's a chance to go watch soccer in the city in a stadium you yeah. own. Because ultimately, so like, the important thing is that it's a stadium. That it exists after all those years of RFK. So my thing is like, okay, then do something with it now. Like you don't have the revenue drain of RFK anymore. You have a, a home stadium. Like go and do something with but it now. they have a weird ownership situation. They really do. And like that's, I think, at the heart of a lot of this. Steve Kaplan has the money. Jason Levian does not. Jason Levian has way more power than his money would indicate, basically. And he has a lot of say in these things in the day-to-day and, and and whatnot. And he got the stadium deal done. He did the politicking there. And credit to him on that, man. Like Because that was something that they couldn't do for 20 years, and he came in and he did it, right? And, and that's super important. But And I th- we need to dive into this more. But like I, I just wonder how much... Does the fact that, you know, this isn't a, a poor individual by any means, but relative to the billionaire owners like Joe Mansueto in Chicago, for instance, or John Fisher in San Jose, not that he's doing anything with it, he, he doesn't have that money, like not even close to that money. Like he's closer to you and I than he is to them, you know? 
And, and so how much does that fact affect what they can do from a spending perspective? Is, is it a situation where there are capital calls and he's not willing to put in and he doesn't want Steve Kaplan to put in because that would lower the percentage stake that he has in the team? I don't know. I don't know what their agreements are like. I don't know what their relationship is like contractually, but I do wonder about it and I do wonder how much it holds this, this club back um, from a perspective how, of how much they can invest on players, on infrastructure, on everything um, and how much they can really take advantage of of the situation that they are in and were in back in 2018 when Kaplan was making those comments to you and Wayne Rooney was wowing the fans at Audi Field. I think what what should stand out from this segment, really to me what stands out about it is those are the things we've just been talking about. Those are the things that are going to impact the success and the, and the trajectory of DC United. Ownership, whatever the relationship is with Kaplan and Levian, um, their willingness to spend, their desire to be more aggressive um, and to start to capitalize now that they've built the stadium and the training facility. You know, do they, what do they want to do? How much do they want to spend? Who do they want to be? Do they want to be Colorado and Philadelphia? Do they want to be Portland? You know, that you don't have to be Atlanta. It's, it's convenient to be like, well, we're, you know, we're not Atlanta. We're not LAFC. We're not NYCFC. You don't have to be that, Toronto. You can be Portland. You can be Chicago right now, you know, and spending, you know, at a, a mid-tier level on players. What do they want to be? That's, that's, to me, the bigger problem and the bigger question versus changing out Hernan Losada for Chad Ashton. Like, that's not going to make a long-term impact at DC United, I don't think. I mean, who knows? It might. Maybe Chashton comes in and dazzles us. Maybe. You know? um, the players seem to, to like him, for whatever that's worth. Um, we'll see. He'll have an opportunity for the rest of this season um, from, from what's been reported by Pablo in our piece and by others elsewhere. Um, and if he does well, I fully expect he'll get that job on yeah. a permanent basis. Did well in 2020. Yeah, limited time, though. I think only seven games, so small sample. Um, one more game than Hernan Lasada got this season, <laughs> for whatever that's worth. Um, anyway, Paul, we're talking about owners. We're going to talk more about owners, and specifically what makes a good owner in the next segment. So stay with us. We'll dive into that issue a little bit more. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day, or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Welcome back to Allocation Disorder. We spent some time listening to me ramble about DC United incoherently because I get upset when that team is not good. Way but to sell the show, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> but it leads us it leads us into this question, really, Sam, which is like for all of our complaining that we both like to do and that lots of fans like to do. And and I think a lot of the conversations we have uh, with sources, what 
makes a good MLS owner? Well, I think the first question that I would respond to that question with is what are the owner's intentions, right? Is what, what is the main motivation here? Is it a vehicle for investment and for financial gain? Is it a vehicle for winning and pride and civic uh, happiness and all of those things? Um, is it a vehicle to try and grow the sport in this country? Um, and if it's yes to the first one, then I think you have problems right off the bat. I'm not saying there can't be any financial motivation in this game, but I think the primary thing for an MLS owner should be, or ideally is like, Hey, I'm here to win. I'm here to build something sustainable and I'm here to kind of grow the game in the United States. And that might mean financial pain in the short term, but in the long term, I'm betting me being a billionaire owner of a major league soccer team, that it will pay dividends in, in the long run. And I will eventually be profitable. And even before I become profitable, my stake, right? My valuation of my club will rise maybe dramatically or maybe incrementally. And so I think that's, that's the first question. And then everything else kind of follows, right? Like, are you making big ambitious signings? Are you building a competent academy? Are you running your organization in a way that makes sense from a just an organizational perspective? Are you creating systems on the commercial side, on the sporting side, where you can sustain success regardless of who's in charge, right? Are you creating a good culture? Um, do you have a stadium, right? Like, do you have a soccer-specific stadium or do you have a stadium like the ones that we see in Atlanta or even Seattle where it's not soccer-specific, but it's, you know, built with, with the purpose of soccer in mind. Um, and, and then, you know, do you behave well, <laughs> right? Like, because that's been an issue in MLS here over the last couple of years in, in Salt Lake, in Portland, right? And, and are you, are you kind of doing the right things in the community and, and with your own players in regards to social issues? Um, so those are some of the questions that, that I would look at in terms of a good owner. But the, the big one is what are your intentions and do you intend to win? Or are you in this, you know, because it's a good, it's a good investment and it's growing exponentially and you can, you know, make, make some real estate money on the side too. Yeah. And, and don't forget about political capital. You know, you, as a, as an owner of a professional sports team in a city, you get access to politicians that even billionaire money can't buy you all the time. It puts you in different rooms um, because you have that civic role, right? You are a part of the community, whether you like it or not. And, and, and it does change the dynamic. It certainly makes you, uh, you know, a, a name that gets talked about more. You know, David Tepper was always a billionaire. He was a different kind of billionaire when he was, became the Panthers owner, David Tepper. So that, let's not forget about that part as well. I think, you know, for me, there is, if we're going to get down to like the actual soccer side of it specifically, I think you hit the nail on the head when you were, when you were asking the questions about what is the plan? Like what type of team do you want to be? What type of franchise club, whatever. I know there's a big debate about what to call it in MLS. Like, do you want to be, <laughs> um, when I say big debate, I mean like 12 people on Twitter, but you know, and that, that, that extends to your community work that extends to your commercial uh, strategy. And certainly it's evident on the soccer side. Like, I have no problem with Philadelphia being what they are because that is their plan. Their plan is to be academy driven. 
FC Dallas. Their plan is based around an academy model that that develops players, plays them, and sells them. I so I think that you have to have a, an idea of that. Now, in order to truly be competitive, to be a, a winner, like the question is, do you want to just develop players? Or do you want to win? Do you want to try to win trophies, right? That's the next level. And if, you're, if your goal is to be a winning team that, that and your model is like Ajax, like we are going to win and develop players, right? Then you there's a difference. Like Ajax doesn't just play the players they develop. They also actively purchase players in Europe in order to win, right? That's what FC Dallas has been missing. Like they, they've been amazing at developing players. They've been terrible at, turning that into real results on the field and trophies. At least over the um, last half decade. Well, they, when they were winning trophies under Oscar Brea, that was before the academy players were playing. Well, it's not, just not, not entirely true. But I mean, yeah. they weren't playing to the level that they are now. There were like two academy players getting consistent minutes in 2016, maybe three. So, you know. Yeah, point taken. Just go take a look at that roster. Not you, but people who say that. <laughs> Hold on. Let me Google it. It was Kellen Acosta and Victor Ulloa, And I believe that was before Jesse Gonzalez started playing. If I'm remembering right. right. So, I mean, the, the base of that team was Mauro Diaz and Fabian Castillo, neither of whom were homegrown players. Um, so, you know, I, I think there has to be a, a willingness to invest in who you want to be as a club. And then, and then I think there, I think there's the, the most interesting side when it comes to the soccer part is a willingness to give that money, that investment to the people you empower in your in your organization, the COO, the CSO, to, to give them the investment to, to accomplish that goal and to know when to be hands off as well. Yeah. And, and that's a really hard thing for people to do. Not even hands off, just empower the people that you have. Empower the people you have and 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 don't kind of step on their toes when they're trying to put into place like what you've hired them to do. Um, but I, I have no, Sam, we talk about this all the time. You know, when I brought up Dallas and Philadelphia, what I'm trying to say is like, I have no problem if every team wants to do it differently. I mean, MLS doesn't really let you do it differently too much, but like you can find different models to be successful. Not every team has to be Toronto signing a $12 million DP. Well, but this gets into an interesting area for me. And that's the specific area of soccer in the US and in Canada and where it stands and where MLS says it wants to take it, right? And if MLS wants to be one of the best leagues in the world, and if it wants to be a cultural phenomenon, and if it wants to be a real part of our sporting landscape in a way that it is plainly not right now, then I think some of these owners have a deeper responsibility, right? And, and what, when you say, okay, if you want to be an academy-focused club, and you want to do it like Philly and Dallas, do it. Well, yeah, I have no objection to that from a purely sporting perspective. Like none at all, right? And, and what they do, they, they both have done pretty well, in my opinion. But when you're talking about the other side of it, which is such a huge part of this, man, it's such a huge part of this league and this game and this country, then there's got to be more, especially when you're talking about cities that size, right? We talk about, and not just us, Teams like Dallas or Philly get talked about in MLS circles like small markets. These are not small markets. I believe they're both top five in the country. These are big, big, big cities. And they have ownership groups that don't treat their teams like big market teams, straight up, right? And on the one hand, I get it, right? Because 
Dallas, the Hunt family, Philadelphia, Jay Sugarman. Jay Sugarman doesn't have the money that a lot of these owners have, so I think that's the main motivation there. Uh, the Hunts do, for certain. I get it. They've invested millions of dollars into this, tens of millions of dollars, maybe even more, maybe hundreds. And they haven't seen operational returns on that money. So who are we to sit here and say, hey, spend $15, $20 million more a year on this team. It's not going to get you great returns in terms of revenue. It's probably not going to get you immediate returns on the field. Um, and it might not make you that much more of a thing in your community. But you got to do it, right? Who are we to say that? right? Especially when they're sitting back here and, and saying, why would I do that? My franchise valuation has gone up 20, 30 times in the last 10, 15 years. Like, why would I do that? Um, so I, 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 I get it, but you know, you know who can say those things, Paul, the owners that are actually doing it. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> you know, the ones and, who are and, getting sick and tired. Of, yeah. Um, and like, this is, this is like MLS's free rider problem, man. Because these valuations have gone up in large part because of what people like Arthur Blank and what people like the LAFC owners and the Toronto owners and what have you are doing, right? And they are the ones pushing the league forward. And meanwhile, the Dallas and the Hunts and Philly and Colorado and San Jose, they can all sit back in the cut and be like, yeah, I'm just going to limit my costs and watch this valuation go through the roof. And, you know, maybe I'll make some real estate money on the side and that's a good business, right? I might lose a few million bucks a year, but I'm passively making way more than that in terms of my valuation. And, and those few million bucks a year, uh, let's just write it off. It's not quite as much as a few million bucks a year looks like, right? So <laughs> I don't know. If I'm Arthur Blank or an owner like him, I'm going to these guys and be like, yo, it's time to start pulling your weight. And MLS thankfully doesn't have as many owners who are just you know along for the ride as they used to um and that's a good thing but there are still some and i would include san jose and dc both in that group yeah well i think it's i think if like we want to just like basically say what is the ideal mls owner looks like well it looks like arthur blank or joe mansueto like let's let's be frank right both owners who have come in and basically said what do you need to be successful here is the money to do it yeah you know, for, for Chicago. And by the way, look at Atlanta. Like, they're probably one of the few profitable teams in the league, I would guess. Definitely. You know, like, like Arthur Blank has more motivation to keep spending than does Joe Mansueto <laughs> at this point in time. <laughs> you know? Yeah. But that's that's what it looks like. It, it's, it's, a, it's a willingness to try to be successful by spending money and caring a little bit less about the short, not a little bit less, caring a lot less about the short term. Not caring at all. Or not I caring think. at all. In <laughs> and understanding that this is a long term game you're in and that there is, I think there, you know, from sitting down with Joe Mansueto, I think there is a bit of civic. Like, it's like, yeah. a, I don't want to call it a toy, but it's like, this is something that represents the city that he loves. He wants it to become a thing. He's not doing it just to, he's not doing it to make money. He's not doing it to flip it in a few years. He's doing it to be a part of his legacy. Yeah. And and that creates a different type of motivation in an owner that I think is, you know, an ideal in that, you know, it's not about the bottom line. And that always changes the equation about what you're yeah. capable, what you're able to do. Paul, we talked about Mansuita. Was it last week or the week before? I can't even remember. I think it was last week. But I had somebody who's who really knows 
the landscape both here and in Europe text me after that. And he was like, man, that Mansueto interview blew my mind. He's like, <laughs> I knew how much he was spending, but I'd never really like thought about it all together at once. And like, you look at how much money he's spending, you look at like, you guess what he's probably getting back in return. And like, this guy is like clearly in it, right? He is in it. And it's telling Right. Like, first of all, it's like, okay, this is sort of the ideal MLS owner. It's like a benevolent soccer loving person who wants to create something really cool for his city and wants to grow the sport in this country, regardless of the fact that he's setting hundreds of millions of dollars on fire in the short term. No pun intended. Um, like, that's what you need. Right. But like, isn't that also like a little bit? It's a little bit concerning. I don't know if it's damning. It's definitely scary. That like if MLS is going to get to the place it wants to get, and it, and and if it if it's going to get there with the speed that people like you and I and probably a lot of people listening to the show want want it to get there, it's going to require like twenty of Joe Mansueto, and there aren't twenty Joe Mansuetos right now, right? I mean, yes and no, Sam. I mean, you don't have to be Joe Mansueto if you're Arthur Blank making money every year. Sure, you're putting, but you know, but Paul, but Paul, Tepper, we talk like about this, they, but we talk about this. It's much easier to do what Arthur Blank is doing when you're starting with, again, no pun intended, a blank canvas. MLS has maybe three expansion slots left. There are very few blank canvases left. And so sure. you're, you're going to start getting to a place where the only time places new owners like a Joe Mansueto can come in and do what Joe Mansueto is doing is, is in a legacy market where there's 20, 30, who knows, 35, 40 years down the road um, of history of, of failure, right? Yeah. But but you don't it doesn't I just think that you need some Joe Mansuetos and Arthur Blanks and MLS is starting to get them Arthur Blank and Joe Mansueto and I think LAFC <laughs> would be on board with this yeah in Toronto. in Toronto and yeah there, so there's so a small conglomerate the Moss brothers are certainly on board with with changing the way Cincinnati things are done. yeah Cincinnati is spending at that level got to have you some know, better I, execution think, in those last two places you're, <laughs> you're also you're also seeing owners who are coming in and taking these teams away from owners who can't spend at that level and are spending more money, maybe not completely at the level of Mansueto yeah. or Arthur Blank, but you Houston. know, that are improving those markets, Houston, uh, Orlando, Salt Lake in theory, potentially Salt Lake. Yeah. We, we don't know yet, but potentially. And so there are these places where this can happen. The question is, are those owners going to be able to come together and make change you know, to actually affect change in MLS. And this is another thing. A lot of questions, people in the comments or on Twitter from the piece I wrote about San Jose earlier this week is like, hey, can MLS actually do anything about an owner like John Fisher, right? Like what levers can the league pull to like motivate this person to try harder, right? And I need to look into it a little bit more, but at the end of the day, they can't pull that many levers. And I was talking to a source about this and, and the source was, sort of saying, you know, one thing that David Stern, the late NBA commissioner who oversaw that league's transformation from kind of a niche mid-level thing into a phenomenon, um, one thing that he was really good at was like basically acting like a political whip, like a majority, a minority whip in the House of Representatives and whipping his owners, like basically to go get those other owners that were lagging behind to drag them up. Right. And to get them into shape, because a lot of times the only lever you have or the best lever you have in these situations is shame and peer pressure. Right. Like that's what these guys respond to. Right. John Fisher, for instance, he's behaving in a completely rational way from a financial standpoint. 
like a completely rational. The Quakes are valued at 510 million right now. He bought in as part of a group that paid a $20 million expansion fee 15 years ago. Why wouldn't he continue acting how he's acting from that perspective? Right. Well, basically, the only reason is if you have the owners at the board of governors meeting at this high school cafeteria glorified, bully him into changing his behavior. <laughs> right. To be clear, we do not advocate bullying. Not bully, but peer pressure him, basically. And being like, John, like, we're all pulling our weight. You're not. And we're seeding this market that should be great for MLS. And you can say this, you can go down the line. You can say it for DC. You can say it to a degree for Dallas. Um, and, and, you know, maybe that's a way that, that Don Garber and these other owners can force change. And Paul, we, we talk about it all the time. That mass, that critical mass is building. There are more owners that are like this now than there ever have been. So we'll see if they get there. It's it's not just that there's frustration building, you know, at least from what our sources are telling us, there's frustration building with some owners who have been okay, kind of doing their thing and, and spending the way they want, who are now looking around the league being like, you know, this is, this is BS. Yeah. You know, this is not okay. And the question is, when will they, when will they start to talk about that at the BOG table? Yeah. When will they start and, to advocate? And when will they start to talk to us about it, Paul? That's right. Most importantly. <laughs> <laughs> Arthur Blank, call me up. Call me up, man. <laughs> Go talk to your PR guy. He has my number. Um, <laughs> oh man you have anything else that i think this is a good place to end this segment and transition into the final one where we can talk more about some owners in a situation going on down in miami some trouble in columbus some dual national stuff some cup sets u.s open cup back in action this week so last chance saloon here paul you got anything else you want to say no just uh you know again there is no you know there is no perfect formula for an owner Unless you're Joe Mansueto and wow. Arthur Blank, and if you're and if or Toronto and LAFC who are trying, really, that's what it comes just down try. to. Right? Yeah. Just try, just try, just like, try, baby. genuinely try though, not like fake try, like real trying. Just and try. we know when you're trying and when you're not. Okay, it's very obvious. Just try. That's all. Stay with us, allocation disorder. <laughs> this episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. All new Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. Hey folks, this is Taylor from the Total Soccer Show reminding you that we are inching ever closer to the start of the summer transfer window, which means there are teams that will buy and sell their players early, there are teams that will leave that business very late, and there are teams that will operate in between. But no matter what, it's going to be a chaotic situation, there's going to be offers coming through willy-nilly, there's going to be transactions to be tracked and processed and make sure that enough money is there, there's going to be probably angry clubs calling to complain, there are many things to deal with, and unfortunately for those clubs, there is no sort of business tool that makes things easier, makes transactions simpler, gets the business done efficiently and effectively, but for the small businesses around the globe, there is such a service, Shopify. 
Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're auctioning autographed apparel or selling sleek kits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And you can sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. And I really appreciate that about Shopify. No matter how big you are, no matter how fast you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, and Shopify's the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklyn, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. That's as many countries as will be selling players in the transfer window this summer. Plus, Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash TSS, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash TSS now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash TSS. Welcome back to Allocation Disorder Sam, you alluded to this at the end of the last segment, but uh, there is more trouble potentially in South Florida. It's never mm, been easy yeah, in Miami. A difficult word. And this is a saga that's been going on since Beckham first announced he was taking his team to Miami. And that is essentially where are they going to play? They have a temporary stadium. They have a they had a plot of land for a stadium. Then they decided they didn't want that plot of land. Now they have another plot of land. And there is a vote upcoming, Sam, and it's a big vote for Inter-Miami. It will determine whether or not that plot of land becomes their stadium. You've been doing some reporting on what's happening around the stadium. What's the deal right now, Sam? Yeah, so we're presumably, it looks like we're in the final stretch. And I say presumably and looks like because this vote has been delayed four times since <laughs> since the start of February. So who knows if it will actually happen, but it's currently scheduled for next Thursday, April 28th. Miami City commissioners, of which there are five, will be taking a look at a lease that was sort of negotiated between the city and the Inter-Miami ownership group for Melry's Golf Course for 99 years. And the plan is for Jorge Mas and David Beckham and co to redevelop that golf course, to build a 25,000 seat soccer specific stadium on that course. Um, but, and this is probably the main motivation, uh, to develop it commercially and to build hotels and 400,000 square feet of office space and create something called a tech hub. Um, and also in include a 58 acre park because there are a lot of laws and rules where they can't be reducing this parkland and, and all of these things. So there's a lot going on here. Um, they need to get four out of five commissioners to say yes to vote to get this project through. One is a hard no and has been for years since this thing came through in 2018 and was put on a ballot. Um, whether or not basically they, they would Miami would go forward with a no-bid process and just negotiate strictly with the inner Miami group for this piece of land. Um, there have been a million different twists and turns. It would take a long time to run all of those down, so I don't really have – we don't have to do that here. Um, but 
it's going to be interesting, to say the least, to see if it goes through. And and this is sort of popped this week because Billy Corbin, who's a filmmaker, um, document documentarian, and kind of local uh, activist down in South Florida and in Miami, made a video that he released on Twitter earlier this week, basically slamming this effort uh, to build this stadium and to redevelop this property, which right now is a golf course, but a public golf course in Miami. Um, and the person narrating this video was was David Sampson. For those of you who do not know, David Sampson was the former president of the Florida and then Miami Marlins. Um, he was the one that built the stadium, got Marlins Park built. Um, that stadium infamously, uh, until the Buffalo Bills recent deal with upstate New York and the county and Buffalo up there, um, was kind of widely considered the biggest, I don't know, what's the word, Paul? Grift? Uh, robbing of taxpayers, um, uh, you know, worst when stadium deal. When you're talking about welfare for for mi- hundred millionaires and billionaires to build stadiums for them for their own private organizations, that was the worst one, and it really kind of paused it nationwide, right? And so that video really equated the two deals. And David Sampson is saying, "I was the president of the Marlins. I know what this looks like when you're getting effed, Miami." And you're getting effed. And it's different than the Marlins deal. I think that needs to be said. The Marlins deal was paid for by bonds from the city that were issued, that the city's having to pay interest on every single year. Um, This deal would be privately financed by Jorge Mas and his group. Um, What the issue is, is are they getting proper value? Is Miami getting proper value for this land? And are they getting paid enough money for it? And... um, so we'll see. We'll see if the vote gets even happens next week. Um, but if it does and it gets approved, then Miami can finally start really the process of, of trying to break ground. There's a lot that has to happen before they can even do that. Environmental concerns. Turns out that land is extremely contaminated, um, <laughs> which depending on who you talk to is normal or not for a golf course. Um, so they they have a 30 plus million dollar project of cleaning that up before they can actually start construction. So there's a long way to go before they're not playing in Fort Lauderdale. Um, if they say no, then Miami has to move to a different different plan. Um, maybe they head back to Overtown, uh, a site that they were considering before they, they looked at Melrose. But I think the key thing there is that that Overtown site's a lot smaller. And what does that mean, Paul? That means real less estate real deal. estate development. That means those office spaces, those hotels, that tech hub, those parking lots, all that stuff, a lot less room for it. Um, and that means a lot less money for the inner Miami ownership group. So that's part of this deal. And that's why they want to build it on the big plot of land at Melrose. So keep your eye on that. It's going to be a huge moment for them. And, uh, we'll see if the, if the dream is alive or if it gets deferred slash moved. Um, but anyway, that's probably boring to some of you so we can move on to different, more fun topics. Paul, U.S. Open Cup, man. It's back. Oh, and we oh. had some upsets. Some cup sets. What actually. was your favorite cup set? Oh, by far, it was the Hailstorm yeah. in Salt Lake. I mean, how could it not be? Northern 19, Colorado Hailstorm FC. Just mm, chef's incredible. kiss. <laughs> really incredible. Um, 19,000 people at the stadium in Salt Lake at Rio Tinto. And the Hailstorm, which has not yet played a home game, which has played has existed for two weeks, which has played just one game together before this game, and they win at Salt Lake one nothing to move on. How is that, that that by far the best story so far? I mean, 
Detroit City moving up to USL Championship, knocking out Columbus Crew. Um, that's a good one, I think. Um, and, and speaking of Columbus, can we transition to a second? We haven't spent much time on US Open Cup, so we can put a pin if you want. Are we good to move to, to the Columbus Crew? Just, we just wanted to talk about the hailstorm. Yeah, I mean, we kind of did. Um, sky sort of falling in central Ohio. They won MLS Cup in 2020, obviously a very strange season. 2021, they missed the playoffs because Caleb Porter cannot make the playoffs two years in a row. Everyone knows this. It is law. Um, but usually he doesn't miss the playoffs two years in a row. And Columbus are in a, a large skid right now. Um, he's not happy, clearly. Uh, he did not talk to the press after they lost to the U.S. Open Cup to Detroit City, which is never a good sign. Just ask Matias Almeida. Um, Paul, you think, you think there's smoke here? You think there's fire? You think we could be on our way to potentially a coaching change? What's going on with the crew? Yeah. I mean, look, I think we've spoken about this before. Caleb Porter is volatile. He is a personality that runs hot. I think all the time and, or almost all the time you you can get him kind of chill occasionally. Um, He's feisty. Yeah. And and so do I think that there's smoke or fire here? Yeah, because I think that he's, you know, a personality. I remember when he left Portland and talking to um, Gavin Wilkinson and Merritt Paulson in the days after that decision. And the quotes continue like from all three of them, the quotes were like, oh, we have a great relationship. This is like a, you know, mutual decision. Um, it's actually amazing that the three of us have lasted this long. Like that was like the quote <laughs> from the themes. Like it was like, you know, it's very difficult to to kind of maintain these relationships for for as long as we have, and and we've done a great job, and that's why we're still friends. But like we've kind of reached our natural conclusion, you know. And so, I mean, I I would imagine that there's some of that happening with Caleb. Like you you hit these these breaking points with those types of personalities that are so intense. Yeah. And and so what happens now? I don't know. I mean, probably depends on if the results start to turn. Yeah. And and if the results turn, then, you know, is there a coaching change? I don't I don't know. But if they don't. It's trouble. I could see it. Um, I think an interest, you know, the the Portland comparison is interesting um, or the note that you made there is interesting. Because I don't, and I was talking to somebody who's familiar with the situation in Columbus yesterday on Wednesday, and sort of going back and forth between Portland and, and, and the crew, and we were talking, and, and we sort of came to the conclusion, Portland had those big personalities, besides Caleb Porter, right? Um, certainly in the front office, but also, you know, even among players. Uh, Columbus doesn't really have that same type of, they don't have those same type of people, Right. They're competitive, don't get me wrong. No one gets to that level without being competitive. But I don't know that the crew really have the type of people in the front office or the locker room that are really going to check Caleb in a way that maybe Merritt Paulson or Gavin Wilkinson would have, right? And so I think that's part of this. But I think, you know, anytime you're saying the things that he's saying in, in the press and talking about how your team needs to be, like, your strikers need neck tattoos and they're too nice and you know, they're like sort of insinuating that they're soft and so on and so forth. You're in the risk of losing the locker room. And anytime you lose the locker room, it's hard to come back from that if you're a head coach. 
So we'll see. You know, I think these next few weeks are really crucial for him. Um, if they can start winning games, everyone will feel better and we'll look back on this as a funny little episode. Uh, if they don't, then I'm very, very curious to see what, what Columbus does. Um, so yeah, that's certainly one well, worth keeping an eye on. I, I think there's two more facts that we should put out there that would, would factor in here. One is that the general manager, the I think he's now president of the club, as well as Tim Bezbachenko, was hired after Caleb Porter. Yeah, thank you. Um, which which is a yeah. significant point in that, you know, Merritt Paulson and Gavin Wilkinson hired Caleb. Bezbachenko did not. And I think that's notable. But also that when they hired Caleb Porter, they gave him a big, fat, guaranteed contract. And he still has another year guaranteed after this, I, I believe. Yeah. He, he's he's paid, you know, well. And I don't know. I don't know what the owners will do. We they, this They're new with the with the crew yeah. you know we they've they've not been shy in in with their nfl team as far no, as coaching changes go certainly not <laughs> um so maybe that's indicative of what would happen if they reached a breaking point but i just think those two things are are worth keeping in mind in regards to the caleb porter situation for those who don't know the haslam's own on the crew and the cleveland browns so um you know that paragon of success uh <laughs> the cleveland browns and virtue these days as well um Paul, we have some dual national news as well. Jonathan Gomez, he's been in U.S. camps before, um, apparently accepting a call to the Mexico national team uh, for, I believe, their upcoming friendly next week. Yeah, against Guatemala. Against Guatemala. Uh, he is currently with Real Sociedad, playing with their reserves over in Spain, formerly of Louisville City in USL, and before that, the FC Dallas Academy. And a guy in your neck of the woods, Gaga Slonina. Um, who keeps getting shout-outs in MLS, not facing a ton of shots. I think it's important to point that out. <laughs> uh, I don't think the Galaxy had a single one on goal on Saturday, um, but but keeping the zero, so that's good. Young goalkeeper, everyone thinks he's very, very talented. Um, he is a Polish dual national, and Poland is apparently getting set to call him up. He has also been involved with the USMNT and was even with them during one of the qualifying camps. Um what do we make of this? Should people be freaking out? Um, is this legit between Slonina and, and 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 Poland, or you know, are we all going Gaga over a bad romance, Paul? Just gonna let that sit there for a second. Um, Just stewing it. You know how I feel about <laughs> dual national panic and dual national talk. Do I? I don't know that I do. And and, and the way I feel about it is, if you don't, the way I feel about it is this. Look, these are incredibly, at some point, these kids have to make these decisions. And they're incredibly personal. It goes back to when I recorded, when we recorded the episode after the game in Costa Rica. And the feelings that I was feeling in that stadium when those anthems were playing. You know, I don't feel... It's not about do I feel more American or do I feel more Costa Rican? I am half American and half Costa Rican by blood. Like that is just who I am. And that's how it is for these kids. And those, you know, the feelings that you have are they all are related to how you grew up and your your relationship with your family and and the way you were raised at home and what things were like and yeah, sometimes the pressure you feel from friends and family and the pressure you feel from the outside world, all of these things are factoring in, but ultimately it's going to come down to like a personal decision. And so I get the thing that frustrates me is when it's like, oh, like what can we do to like, what can U.S. soccer do better? Or what can Greg yeah. Berhalter do to not lose these guys? And with both of these players, I think they've done exactly what they need to do, which is call them into camp, 
with the senior national team, you know, certainly with Gagas Lonina with the youth national teams as well. I don't know if Gomez has, I, I haven't looked at Gomez's background to see how often he was called into the youth national teams, but you know, they both been, they both played for the U S senior national team in the lat or, or been in camp with the U S senior national team in the last six months. They've been exposed to the environment and, and now it's up to them if they want to go and go to like Jonathan Gomez, the report is he wants to go and see what camp is like in Mexico, just like Araujo and just like Efra Alvarez. Not, man? And, and if Lino wants to explore the option with Poland, by all means, go ahead. But it's going to come down to their decisions. I would say that the idea that these players should be cap tied simply to end their ability to make a decision is ridiculous. And you know, I hope that these players are given the space and the consideration that they deserve and understanding of what it feels like to have to choose a country. You know, it, no other place in the world do you have to make a choice like this that has, you know, that has like professional implications. Like okay. it's just a very awkward thing that, that you have to like that you're going to be perceived as picking one more than the other. It's just weird. Yeah. And and it's also a very normal thing in the world of international soccer these days. And I think your point about what can U.S. soccer do, I think I think Greg Berhalter has done a nice job in this area. And Ernie Stewart and Brian McBride. Ernie Stewart himself, a dual national um, as well. So, uh, you know, you let the chips fall where they may. Obviously, it's an incredibly personal decision, as you just said. Uh, there's also, like, you know, a business element to these decisions, too, for these players. Um and I'm not talking about money necessarily, but professional opportunities um, and all of that. And that's part of it. It's head and heart for these guys. Um, and how where you fall on that spectrum is it's very individual and personal and everyone does it differently, right? So, but yeah, I, I would echo what you said in terms of US soccer and what they can do. And it's very difficult to predict what's going to happen. You know, what, you know, we've seen- Impossible to, um, impossible. Yeah, Jonathan Gonzalez yeah. was one dual national who looked like he was going to be a big star and hasn't been with the national team. Efra Alvarez hasn't really factored in too much with with the Mexican national team. Julian Araujo, like, yeah, could go be, to the World Cup with Mexico. Probably would be going to the World Cup with the U.S. You know, yeah. you you just don't know. Um, yeah, how how these careers will shake out. Obviously, if we want to get into it really quick, Agas Lonina is the the top young goalkeeping prospect in this country, and so that would be yeah, that would that would not be ideal to lose him. Jonathan yeah. Gomez plays a position of need for the U.S. at left back. If he continues to develop, yeah, it would not be ideal to lose a left back prospect at a position that's, you know, typically been volatile. But, you know, it's going to come down to what these kids want. Yeah, absolutely. Bad week for the Slonina news to come out, just in terms of the anxiety of USMNT fan base, considering what we saw from Zach Steffen over the weekend. Um, but that's a different discussion entirely. Real quick, Paul, just kind of wrapping up here. Um, a couple other notes. Chris Richards out with an injury looks like he's going to be out three to four weeks which will i think put his his involvement for the june camp into question um weston mckenney obviously still dealing with his injury Gio reyna still dealing with his injury unfortunate timing for the u.s because that june camp is kind of the last long chance to really get this group together and work out the kinks and kind of push forward ahead of qatar it will be interesting though in that it allows greg berhalter to to introduce some new faces. And I think that's that this is the one camp to do it. Take a look at guys like we've talked about on this podcast before, you know, guys like Georgie Mihalovic and, you know, maybe Haji Wright and, and, and those players who are on the fringe and give them the opportunity 
to make an impression. And um, I think Greg Berhalter said it on his podcast with Bobby Warshaw that he hopes that he can introduce some new faces um, in June. So I, I'd expect that. Yep. We will see. We'll find out probably in about a month. So plenty of time to talk about it before then. Plenty of time to talk about other stuff. We talked about a lot on this show. Thank you for sticking with us through it. If you watched on YouTube, thank you for that. Let us know what you're thinking of our presentation, I guess. You know, like if you think my hair is dumb. Well, just don't. T- I, I don't. wore a Boca Juniors jersey and you couldn't really see it on just this episode. Don't, I, don't did, I did that just for McKelly and, and Nico Cantor, basically. So. Wow. Okay. Well, we'll find out if they listen now. They're on the spot. Thanks for listening to Allocation Disorder. I'm Sam. He's Paul. We'll be back next week.